0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of Romans. And instead of the entirety of the book this morning, we are just going to be looking at seven verses. And they just happen to be the first seven verses. So um, if you need a Bible, you can look in the pew in front of you. You should find a Bible there. And uh, the beginning of the book of Romans can be found on page 939 of that Bible. Jacques Derrida is a famous, in certain circles, French, postmodern philosopher. Uh, he is famous for deconstruction and his thinking through phenomenology. None of that means much to us, but to academics it kind of means a lot, and especially academic philosophers. And he was very famous, and he, even as a Frenchman, had come over to the States to give lectures at certain parts of time. And one of these lectures that he gave, he stood up in front of people, and a number of academics had gathered, and he proceeded to, although his expertise was in linguistics and in how language sort of shapes reality around us, he began to give a lecture about cows. And the academics sat in their seats and they took notes about cows. Certainly, some of them had to be wondering what it was about cows. Derrida probably went on about understanding and the appropriation of cows, how it affects our our understanding and structure of the world. And they're thinking, I don't know why knowing about cows is going to actually do that, but we'll, we'll take down notes anyway. The Frenchman takes a break. He goes into another room and he comes back and he says, well, I, I, I've been informed that it's actually pronounced chaos. Because as a Frenchman, when he was reading the English word chaos, as a Frenchman, he probably never hearing it said in English, just read it as cows. And that's exactly how it'd be read in French. And you've got to wonder... For the academics sitting there, how foolish and kind of stupid they must have felt having taken all these notes on cows. Never questioning Derrida. Never asking him, why are you talking about cows? Never wondering, kind of privately perhaps, but never out loud, what does all of this have to do with anything? Why would they listen to him? Why would they listen to a man drone on about cows? Why would they listen to him? Certainly it was because he... Was an authority? Would he listen to you drone on about cows? Would they listen to me give a lecture on cows? I, I doubt it. We don't have authority. There's no reason for them to listen to us. This is something of the problem that Paul faces here in Rome. Paul is not a really well-known quality to them or quantity to them. Certainly they've heard of him. Given the number of people who are listed back in chapter 16, they've, they've certainly heard some good things about him. They, they know good parts of his theology, and, and those who are present who know Paul have not only said good things about Paul, but likely have tried to help form good theology amongst the Romans. But bad things about Paul travel too. Over in chapter 3, he talks about how some people slanderously say that Paul says we should do evil that good may happen. These things travel around as well. They were not founded by Paul. Paul makes mention of that. The Roman church was not founded by him. They heard of Christ without Paul. They formed their own churches without Paul. Why do the Roman churches need Paul? It seems true for us. Our church, even when it was called Bangor Baptist Church, was not founded by the Apostle Paul. Why should we listen to him? Certainly in the 1,960-some years since Paul wrote this letter, we have vastly increased our knowledge of anthropology and sociology and psychology. Why do we need to listen to an ancient Hebrew scholar to talk to us about sin and salvation? Why should Paul be an authority for us? Many of you faithfully would come to the book and say, well, I simply believe that he should be. And you will accept on faith that Paul is an authority, that this is the word of God, and that we should listen to it and apply it to our lives. And if that is so, great, and amen. It ought to then encourage us to hear about how Paul conceived of his own ministry. Others of us, perhaps in here, have questions about Paul's authority. They they either simply doubt it altogether or at least in their heads question the truthfulness of everything that Paul says. I hope that hearing Paul's own words today will help settle any doubts that you might have. Greetings, and especially letter introductions in the ancient world, were typically very short, and they followed a very set pattern. The sender would say his name, and then he would simply say to the recipients, and then greetings. Paul modifies that. In almost every letter he writes, he modifies greetings to be grace and peace to you, And he also extends his name a little bit, talking about who he is. But none of those match how much he extends it in the book of Romans. You'll notice that Paul is the first word in the book of Romans. And you've got to go all the way down to verse 7 to find out who he's actually writing to. He expands it quite a bit. And I think the reason is because the recipients don't actually know Paul. And Paul is trying to tell them exactly who he is so that they might understand better who he is and why it is that they should give him an ear at all. So, who is this Paul, and why are we listening to him? Let us read the first seven verses of the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared and the lord jesus christ this is the word of our god i think that it is best if we go through this scripture and approach it through three separate questions the first question is simply going to be who is the messenger who is this paul who is greeting the church of rome paul describes himself in these opening verse with three basic ideas he is a servant or a slave He has been called and he has been set aside. You'll notice that in this first verse, there is a footnote already in the ESV which says it could be bondservant or slave as well. And there's much debate about how we're supposed to translate this word. Should we translate it as servant or should we translate it as slave? And some get really, really hyped up on this kind of thing and they think it should only be slave or no, slave is too strong, it should only be servant. Servant. If we go with the word slave, our own understanding of the word and even the Greco-Roman understanding of the word doesn't quite capture the full picture of the relationship that Paul has with Jesus or that we are supposed to have with Jesus, our Lord. He is not just Lord and Master, but he is continually referenced throughout Scripture as our teacher, as our brother, as our friend. Hebrews 2.11 goes so far as to say even Jesus himself is not ashamed to call us brothers, So simply considering yourself a slave does not do justice to the full revelation of Scripture about how we are to relate to Jesus Christ. And our understanding, especially our understanding of what slaves are like, might imply that Paul here is an unwilling participant, that he is just here to do his duty, and he is to perform the thing that has been placed in front of us, but he doesn't do so necessarily willingly or with joy. Servant, on the other hand, alleviates some of these problems. It gives us more room for willful and desired duty, and it also implies, at least has available underneath it, this idea of friendship and discipleship. But, by only considering yourself a servant of Jesus and not a slave, you might lower the work of Jesus and lower his position as Lord as though he only has authority over us because we are willing to serve him. Frankly, the same word is used throughout the scriptures here, especially in the book of Romans, which implies a lack of freedom to do otherwise. For instance, in Romans 6.20, we read that when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but you were not free in terms of sin. You must sin. While Neither word seems to work all that well. All of this would have been helpfully fluid in Greek, which it is not in English. None of those options really capture the feeling that Paul is placing down here. Whatever word we use, we should understand that Paul was a duty-bound, willing, and joyful servant of Jesus Christ, sent to do his will. More important for us, though, is the fact that many prophets of old considered themselves slaves or servants, or whatever this word is, however you want to translate it, it is applied to many, many prophets of old. Moses, Ezra, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Zechariah were all spoken of as slaves of God in the exact same way in which Paul is speaking of himself here. This gets deeper when you think about the fact that he says he was set apart for the gospel and called to be an apostle. Both of these words are linked to the prophetic calling and the prophetic movement of God in the Old Testament. Paul is like the prophets of old. In Jeremiah 1.5, we read, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was called and he was set aside from before he was ever born to fulfill the prophetic call that he had on him. Paul speaks in such a way here. This is true of Jeremiah, but it is even more true of a passage like Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, the prophet Isaiah writes this, The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. Called me, in other words... He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. He said to me, You are my servant, my slave, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful the holy one of Israel who has chosen you now given the fact that Isaiah is writing and here writing in the first person we would understand that he is writing about himself but it's clear that whatever he says here and especially numbers of the things that he say here goes far beyond anything that he accomplished in his ministry and is best applied to Jesus Christ Jesus is the one who has kings bow before him. Jesus is the one who has princes prostrate before him. Jesus is the one who will be a light to the nations. But the question must be asked, how is Jesus a light to the nations? It was not during his ministry. It is fulfilled in Jesus through Paul. What Paul is claiming here is he is like that servant in Isaiah 49. He is like the prophets of old. He is the spokesperson for God who goes out into the world. Jesus says this of Paul himself in Acts 9:15. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This passage is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. But through Paul, Therefore, again, what Paul is doing is setting himself up as one with the same authority as the prophets of old. He carries the same weight as they do. Prophets who were roundly considered both by Jews and Christians alike to speak the word of God, to reveal his works and words, and to do so with the Lord's authority. So Isaiah can say, thus saith the Lord. And so can the apostle Paul. This is shown even in the parallel way he speaks of the prophets in verse 2. In verse 2 he says, He was set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Paul himself was set aside to preach the very gospel that the prophets promised. It makes sense then, if they announced the promise of it, that one equal in rank would announce the fulfillment of it. Paul is A prophet. But that brings up the question, why in the world not just call yourself a prophet? It's not as though that word wasn't available. It's not as though Paul doesn't speak of prophets. There were prophets in the New Testament. Why doesn't he just call himself a prophet? Because Paul is more than a prophet. In a word, the reason why is because he moves. The prophets of old were not prophets of movement. I mean, sure, there's Jonah, but he seems to be the exception that proves the rule. Most of the prophets didn't go out, but they came in to the people of Israel. There was indeed a hope in much of what they said. After all, Paul here even talks about the promised gospel that was to come. But it was also filled with proclamation that was meant to convict Israel of their sin. But Paul is not a prophet. He is an apostle. Apostle comes from the same word that means sent. He is one who is sent with the authority of Jesus Christ. It has a sense of movement to it. If the prophets were sent to Israel, who considered themselves in the covenant, and they were sent to those in the covenant to call them out, Paul is sent to people who are not in the covenant, who don't consider themselves in the covenant, in order to call them in. He is a prophet, but he is distinct from the prophets. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 65, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Therefore, as the authorized spokesman for the gospel, Paul's words are the Lord's words. The Romans and no less us are to listen to them and put them into practice. Listen, these aren't idle words. They're not words of a simple philosopher. They're not words of a great man. They're not even words of, of, a, of an amazingly deep thinker who can speak about the realities and the structures of the world in terms of bovines. These are the words of God. Paul is an apostle of God. And the answer to the question who is the messenger? But then, secondly, what is the message? Paul puts it fairly simple. The message is the gospel. He was set aside for the gospel. And that gospel, he begins to clarify in verse 3, concerns his son. The gospel is first and foremost about Jesus. The gospel is not first and foremost about you or about me, but it is about Jesus and the good that Jesus has wrought and done. And so Paul, saying concerning his son, then explains who his son is even more. He says he is descended from David according to the flesh. Sons of God, as we have often noted, do not have implicit in that term the sense of divinity that we often have when we hear the term son of God. We immediately think of Jesus as divine. That wouldn't have necessarily been the first thought of Greco-Roman people and certainly not even Hebrew people. Kings were to be thought of as the sons of God because they led the people both in secular things and in religious things. Therefore, they were considered sons of God. Israel, as a nation, was the son of God. And so the king, as a representative, is to be a son of God. This even comes through in heavily Christological passages like Second Samuel 7. God tells David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And Paul says he is indeed descended from David and he is descended from David according to the flesh. When we first come to this term according to the flesh or the flesh, we are tempted to think and we are right to think that it just means bloodlines, that Jesus wasn't a spirit or an apparition. He wasn't from the line of David by You know, the fact that he had the same characteristics as David or he had the same personality as David or he had the same appointment as David to be king. No, he literally came from the line of David. He descended from David according to the flesh. He could trace his father and his father's father and his father's father's father father, all the way back to David. Paul then says in verse 4 that he was declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness. And here... We run into a pretty vast problem. The word translated declared is used some 27 times both in the New Testament and in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It is not a rare word. It's used for a variety of purposes. In the book of Numbers, it's used as a way to say you've made an oath. Continually through Numbers, it is used about making oaths. In Joshua, it actually refers to the setting of the boundaries of the clans. As the people of God have come into the land, they've got to divide up and portion up the land so that Issachar can have his land and Asher can have his bit of the land. And, and this is the word that's used to draw boundaries. In the book of Acts, it is used quite often as the setting of appropriate times or boundaries or seasons or even plans. It seems, in almost every case, it's best translated with the word a point, But here's the thing, it never anywhere in scripture or in any use in the Greek language that we have from the first century, second century, third century ever mean declare. It just doesn't ever mean that. There's a reason why the ESV translates it that way. It's because using the word appoint sounds really bad. Because once we start saying appointed, and was appointed to be the Son of God in power, immediately what might come to many minds is the idea that Jesus wasn't actually the Son of God during his earthly ministry, that somehow he fumbled around the earth as a normal human being, a normal bloke like you and me. He wasn't especially divine in any sense of the word, but because he did his life right, he was the one human being who happened to bat a thousand. Upon his death, God raised him from the dead and gave him, sort of adopted him into divinity, made him divine, made him God. This is a horrible heresy. And it was rejected very early on by the church, any sort of adoptionistic way of speaking of Jesus Christ. And so those who translate this word, wanting to avoid that, use this word declared. And the reason why declared works here is because you declare things not that are going to be or that currently are or things that have changed, but you almost always declare things that have been. To give what I'm almost positive is a horrible example, yet it was the only one that I could come up with. If Bruce Wayne on his deathbed, and already you're like, you're, you're I'm done with this, but Bruce Wayne on his deathbed, right, were to say, I declare to you I'm Batman. If he were to declare that he's Batman, what he means by that is not I'm now going to start being Batman or I I will try in the future to be Batman. What he means is, I've always been Batman and I'm now just making it known. Which is what the ESV means when they say he was declared to be the son of God in power. What they see happening is at the resurrection, God is putting his final stamp of authority on Jesus Christ and saying now he's being declared to be the son of God. That's great. The only problem is that's not what Paul's saying. It's not even close to what Paul is saying. So how should we understand this word, appoint? First, it's not at all clear that it implies anything about adoption at all. After all, Paul just got done saying that the gospel, which he will explain later in the book of Romans, has to do with not just the life, but specifically the death of Jesus Christ, was about his son. It is hard to explain how the death of Jesus could be about God's son when he wasn't made God's son until he was raised from the grave. But more than that, we have something like chapter 8 verse 3 where Paul says the following, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, and there's that important word flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, while you might say you're reading into this verse to say that he was always the son, and God can talk in ways that are are sort of around the, the actual linear chronological way of he became the son at the resurrection, and maybe he's just applying that earlier on. This verse really is hard to get around. He sent his son to take on the likeness of sinful flesh. This is what I think Paul means when he says he was appointed the son of God in power. He certainly wasn't adopted. Nor can Paul be talking about being appointed the son of God in power about his divinity. So he didn't become more sunnish when he was resurrected from the grave. Because he didn't lose his divinity when he clothed himself in humanity. He didn't gain more divinity when he came up out of the grave. But rather, because the resurrection is a a human part. It is a human side of Jesus Christ, who is both Son of God, God himself, and man. His resurrection means that he is now something new. When we read of him being born according to the flesh of David... When you read through the rest of Romans, you start to understand that that, that word flesh could just mean bloodlines. But even in 8.3, he talks about the weakness of the flesh. That Jesus was indeed the Son of God and fully the Son of God. But his humanity was subject to the flesh. It was subject to weakness. The flesh is prone to death and certainly prone to want. So when Jesus fasted for 40 days and was in the desert and the devil came to him and tempted him and said, if you truly are the Son of God, make these stones into bread. Jesus didn't just wave it off with a magic divinity wand and say, "Nah, I'm good, I'm divine. It was a real test for him because he had real flesh and a real empty stomach at that moment. It was a real temptation because he was indeed Born according to the flesh. But still, even in his condescension, although Jesus was clothed with humility, he is now raised in glory and in power. And that glory and power is the new appointment of the man, Jesus Christ, to being the Son of God in power. It is not the Son who is now appointed the Son, but rather it means that Jesus Christ, both God and man, according to his humanity, is now the Son of God in power, no longer in the weakness of flesh, but immortal and imperishable forevermore, never subject to want or wean again, never subject to hunger or thirst again. He is something drastically new. So in the end, what is being said here by Paul? Jesus is the promised Davidic king. He is the long-awaited-for Messiah. In Greek, he is the Christ, the one to whom all nations will show obedience, who died and rose again. Is this a full presentation of the gospel? No, not really. We, We do membership interviews for people who come in and want to join Crossway, and one of the questions we ask in those membership interviews is, what is the gospel? If someone were to sit in front of me and I said, what is the gospel? And they were to say, well the gospel concerns the Son of God who was descended from David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I would say, amen. I've never heard that particular answer before outside of the book of Romans. But then I would ask follow-up questions. I would say, let's talk about what his resurrection means. Let's talk about what his death means. You'll notice that here there is there's an absence of sin, substitution, substitution. That Jesus died for us in our place. There's a lack of talking about our union with Christ that that even Josh read of this morning. There's a lack of, of a necessary faith that we are to have in him. But we aren't to think that the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, is handled the way we handle it. Paul doesn't have to give a full presentation of the gospel here. He is simply introducing the gospel. It's not a summary. When the Romans got this book, they would have unfurled it and they would have read it from beginning to last. So he doesn't need to make sure that every step of the way he is explicit as he needs to be. The gospel in the book of Romans clearly has to do with Jesus being our substitutionary death. That we owe it a death to God that he took for us. That he was the promised king raised to life again to give us newness of life and spirit. That everyone who believes in him would be able to have the free gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the message of the book of Romans. And while it is not written large here in verses 1 through 7, it is implicit all the way through the book of Romans. That is the message. But then thirdly, what is the purpose of the message? What is the purpose of the message? Paul turns and says... Jesus Christ, our Lord, at the end of verse 4, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And Paul no longer is talking just about himself. I think here he is talking about all of the apostles. The apostles, you need to remember, are not super holy people who didn't need grace. Part of the appointment as apostles meant that they had to have grace in their lives. Grace was necessary for the appointment as an apostle. And there is a reason for this grace. They were given grace and apostleship, he says, to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul links, as he does, everywhere, faith and obedience. It always kind of confuses me. The more I read Paul, that people read Paul, and then they go to James and they read James, and they're like, hey, there's contradictions here. I just, Paul everywhere talks about obedience and faith linked together. It is impossible to be faithful without seeking obedience. You might say that you have faith, but Paul never thinks that you have faith outside of seeking obedience. And what's more, as he's going to make mention of later in the book of Romans, you cannot seek obedience without being one of faith. The purpose of the proclamation of the gospel is and always has been to bring a people to faith. But that faith is not simply to get them out of hell and into heaven. It is to give them holiness, to make them a holy people. As Peter says in 1 Peter two nine. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The reason why Paul has been given grace and apostleship is to bring about such obedient faith. And he says that this is amongst all the nations. It is every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and be obedient to him faithfully. This is to happen through the sending out of Paul. In Genesis 49, we have the prophecy coming to Judah, that the scepter will not depart from him, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That is a very nice Hebrew way of saying, When he says from between his feet, it's a nice way of saying that your son, the one who comes from your loins, will indeed hold that ruler forever. The ruler's staff will not move from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That is precisely what Paul is being sent out to accomplish, that all people may faithfully be obedient to the name of Jesus Christ, and that is the key. It is all for Jesus Christ. The gospel begins and it concerns his son and it is for the glory of Jesus Christ. And some balk at the idea that God has given us the gospel primarily to increase his glory and his great name. If you talk to them, they will say that this makes Jesus sound and God sound, frankly, narcissistic, selfish, that they want glory for themselves through this. When I was thinking of this this week, and I came up with that really bad introduction, I remember the only thing I've ever actually read by Jacques Derrida was about gifts. And in that philosophical treatment, he said, you know, for a gift to really be a gift and not some sort of transaction, the person who gets the gift, the person who receives the gift, can't know that they've been given a gift. Because if they know that they've been given a gift, and especially if they know who gave it to them, then they can give thanks Even if they only think it in their minds, if they give thanks back to him, in their heads that's a form of repayment. That's a form of of acknowledgement. So he says, the true gift isn't even known in its giving. Okay. That is far outside the realm of the way anybody has ever spoken of gifts. That's why Derrida speaking about cows is not out of the ordinary. And Derrida is wrong, and so are those who think that this makes the Trinity narcissistic. Rather, the greatness of Jesus and the glory of his name is seen in the goodness of the gift. Have you, you, in October and November, been thinking about a gift that you're going to give to your kids, and you spend time, like, considering it, and you come up with a brilliant idea, and you're like, I know that, I'm going to get that for them. And you spend $30 or $40 or more, however much you spend, and you think this is going to be a great gift. You wrap it up saying, I can't wait to see their eyes pop and their mouths open. When they get this gift, they're going to love it. They rip it open. They take out the toy and their face explodes because they're putting the toy away and now they've got a brand new box to play with. And you feel super stupid because you didn't need to get them a $30, $40 gift. You could have just gotten them something out of the recycling bin. But any of those times where you actually give a gift and it's, perfect and it hits home and you watch your spouse light up or you watch your kids light up or you watch your friend light up, their thankfulness to you, how did you know? This is perfect. Thank you so much. The greater the gift, the greater the thanks. This isn't quite what happens in the gospel, but it's close. Listen, the greater our joy, the greater our thankfulness, the greater our appreciation of the gift of what Jesus Christ has given to us. The more we enjoy it, the more glory Jesus receives from our joy. Far from being narcissistic, the better it is for us, the more glory it is for him. Jesus gets glory because he has given us so much joy, because his gift is so perfect and wonderful and excellent. That is why he receives glory. And the Romans fit in directly here. It is to go to all the nations. In verse 6 he says, including you. Paul says, my task is to take this gospel to all of the nations. And by the way, Romans, that's you. They too are part of all the nations that fall under Paul's authority. Even though they weren't started under Paul's authority, they still fall under it. As do we today. They have been called by God to be holy They have received grace and peace from both the Father and the Son. Therefore, they need to see in Paul his God-given authority to speak of the Son's work. And here's the rub, both for the Romans and for us. We cannot simply form our own opinions of Jesus. We can't make him out to be what we want him to be or to think that we can sort of determine the good parts or the bad parts of him by our own estimation. Rather, we need to hear rightly from the very one who was appointed by Jesus himself to tell us about him. we can't say, well, I like this about Jesus, but I don't really care for that. And Paul says, no, you don't understand. I'm telling you, by Jesus' own command, precisely what you need to know. And friend, we can listen to 1,900 years worth of thought about anthropology and sociology and psychology and all the other ologies And we can think through them and we can accept them. But when they start to impact what we make of Jesus Christ and his work, we have to come back to Paul and say, does that adhere to what Paul is saying? Because Paul is the interpreter of Jesus Christ for us. The ones who have written scripture for us are the interpreters of Jesus Christ and what is true and what is real and what is good and what is right. Therefore, let us listen well to Paul. Not simply, and I mean this with all my heart, not simply because we need to know the truth. You need to know the truth, but you need more than the truth. Truth is not an end in itself. Rather, it is because grace and peace and good are bound up with that truth. All the good you can possibly desire is bound up with this truth. And this good, wonderful gift of grace and peace is yours only through Jesus Christ and the Jesus Christ that Paul preaches. This Jesus Christ who came to redeem his people who did not know him, to give them life and joy, peace and comfort, and these things in abundance. So yes, When we speak of Paul and we speak of his word, we will speak of his authority, but not his authority for power, not of our authority in the word, because it's not about his authority for power, but his authority for the gift. Because in his authority, he gives us the full blessing that is found in Jesus Christ, the full measure of his grace, peace, mercy, joy, love, and hope. Let us give ourselves over to this truth. A new, afresh, for the first time, that we might know the truest of goods, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that in that he might be glorified. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and for the great gift of your word. How wonderful it is that we do not have to spend our time in endless speculation of what Jesus has done or who he is. Rather, not only did you condescend to take on flesh for our redemption, you have also provided us with all we need to find him, to glorify him and experience his grace. Gift upon gift, may such a gracious God forever be praised. Amen.